Welcome to the Relationship Road Trip, navigating the twists and turns of all the important relationships in your life. I'm Ben Azevedo, your backseat driver, that weird little voice in the back of your head asking questions. I'm Dr. Don Fernando Azevedo, clinical psychologist, executive coach, and voiceover artist, your navigator. And I'm Kim Azevedo, licensed marriage and family therapist, your mechanic. You're at the wheel drivers, taking us into new and exciting territory by which I mostly mean talking about mental health instead of relationships. Today's quote is by Glenn Close. What mental health needs is more sunlight more candor, and more unashamed conversation. Last week, we closed out our arc on parent-child relationships by talking about single parenting and its unique challenges. Welcome to the next arc in season two. For the next several episodes, we'll be talking about mental health in general and the societal relationship with this genre of diagnoses. Today's episode is focused on giving y'all some language around what goes into mental health treatment and how it's perceived on a wider scale. Let's start this off with talking about the prevalence of mental health diagnoses. So how prevalent are mental health diagnoses? Who is impacted by this? Pretty much everybody is impacted by mental health diagnoses. Whether you have a mental illness yourself, whether you know somebody, a lot of people experience this. 20.6% of U.S. adults experience mental illness. 17% of youth ages 6 to 17 experience mental health diagnoses. If we start looking into suicide, which is another big thing within this conversation, 46% of people who die by suicide have a diagnosed mental health condition. 90% of people who die by suicide have experienced symptoms of a mental illness. This is statistics brought to you by NAMI, which is the National Association of Mental Illness. Ben, it looked like you had a question. I don't think it's a good question. I don't really know how to ask it, I guess. The relationship of suicide to mental health as a sort of risk factor or like suicide is not a mental health diagnosis or condition. Correct. It is, but And it's not always caused by mental health. Correct. That's correct. I mean, so you saw there that less than half of the folks have a mental health diagnosis. Now, 90% of the folks have symptoms. Yeah, that was kind of what got me thinking. It's like, okay, so a lot of people probably have undiagnosed mental health problems. Sure. <laughs> Since most people wait an incredibly long time before getting any kind of care for the symptoms that they experience. Part of the issue with suicide is that it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. From the, the person's perspective, the problem doesn't feel temporary. It doesn't feel like they can do anything about it except exit. And that's really what's underneath suicide. And a lot of that comes from silence. They can't reach out or when they do reach out, they aren't met with acceptance and help and support. Hmm. So... Correct. It's not a mental health illness, but it is a symptom of several mental health. And I keep stumbling on illness. Mental health illness is the terminology. And it's interesting. 
I've stumbled on it, Ben, you stumbled on it. And it's this sense of feeling awkward of saying a mental health illness, but it's normal. You wouldn't say a broken bone complication or a, you know, I'm trying to think of other physical. Well, well you, maybe you something that's a more down fracture, but okay. More ongoing than a broken bone, like, I don't know, arthritis or like high blood pressure or something. Or diabetes. Actually, you're much more intact with that. Mental illness is more like chronic disease. Yes, that's what I'm trying to get at. Than it is a fracture. But disease feels wrong, too. (laughs) A mental disease. (laughs) Well, that's why we're on mental illness. (laughs) We don't have good language for this. Understand that that the study of uh, mental health grew out of a medical practice. And what medicine is all about is health or disease. And medicine is about resolving disease processes. And so we have all this terminology that probably isn't the right thing to describe mental health, which is a strength, as mm. opposed to mental illness, which and is... that's why we started this arc. <laughs> right. It's really complicated. And we, instead of breaking away from the medical model and using a new way of describing all of this... We've stuck with the medical model. So somebody has to be ill. And what's interesting about sticking to the medical model is that it's easier to communicate with other health practitioners, which is part of sticking with the DSM and having diagnosis for this. So it's not all bad, but it it does feel awkward. Yes. Yeah. And and the other thing about mental illness is it does not discriminate based on race, ethnicity, sexual preference, gender identity, eye color, anything. It doesn't discriminate. It hits everyone. And because it hits everyone, you probably know someone or are related to someone who's struggling with mental health problems. There's nothing wrong with saying illness. Is what I was trying to get to earlier. It's one of those things where we jumble around it because it feels uncomfortable. And part of that comes from the level of stigmatization that we've created around mental illness. I know we have a bunch of statistics and percentages here in our notes, and I don't know that we need to read all of them. But if anything, what you're saying, Papa, about it affecting everyone, if anything goes the other way, it affects certain groups more because of other factors, because of societal factors or... But yes. you know what I'm getting at. Sure. And economics is a big portion of this. That yeah. If you don't have a lot of money or a lot of cash, it's very difficult to get the treatments that you need. And uh, even looking at something as, I don't want to call it simple, but looking at one factor like stress. Mm-hmm. Stress is interesting because it can be negative. It can be positive. It's not 100% one or the other. But things like economic stability and social support, social support, lots of other factors impact your level of stress, which then can lead to all kinds of other good or bad things, both physical illnesses and mental health illnesses. Yes, absolutely. You know, and if you're working two jobs to, to try and just stay afloat, it's hard to stay physically or mentally or spiritually healthy. Healthy. Yeah. So do we want to read a bunch of percentages or no? Multiracial has the highest on there and then lesbian, gay or bisexual. But I think it's also trans and other 
people right. in that letter. Well, so we, I mean, a higher percentage of mental illness amongst queer folks. Yes. The additional thing is the intersectionality. So folks who are in more than one marginalized group have greater and greater likelihood of mental illness because they get less and less support and a whole lot more reviling. Society kind of kicks them pretty hard and it's hard to survive that. Yep. All, All right. right. So <laughs> mental health needs are pretty prominent. We've established that. What about resources for treatment? All right. So all of the statistics that we're pulling from is from research done in 2019. The majority of this is by NAMI. And I think I included a couple of other research groups. But again, from 2019, 44.8% of U.S. adults with mental illness received treatment. And then 65.5% of U.S. adults with serious mental illness received treatment in 2019. Wait, what's and the difference between mental illness and serious mental illness? So, oh, we're going to define that. But just <laughs> let's sit there for just a second. And the people who have need, who have a, a mental illness, whether it's serious or mundane, <laughs> I don't know what the other <laughs> word would be, or just normal. Half, half of the people did not get the treatment they need. That's yep. a stunning statistic. How could we as a first world country not be providing this care? Which we'll get into later when we talk about health insurance and the complications that come with that. But, but, but yeah, I mean, that is like saying that half the diabetics out there just didn't get care or yeah, half yeah. of the like people with oh. cancer. Sure. Yeah. And any other physical disease that we go above and beyond to serve would never tolerate half of the folks don't get care. Yeah, yep. that's uh, that's not a passing grade. No. Ben, to answer your question about what is serious mental illness, it's best defined by the way it impacts your major life activities. So your ability to care for yourself, your ability to perform manual tasks, seeing, hearing, eating, daily living activities. Some mental illnesses impact that much more significantly. So things like schizophrenia and borderline and bipolar disorder all impact significantly your ability to engage in those activities. There's also variants of depression that push into that I can't do fundamental life activities. That's where the serious mental illness comes in. The other diagnosis of just general mental illness is when you're still at a level where your daily activities are met. I think that maybe plays into a lot of people not seeking treatment. People compensate a lot and don't yep. necessarily recognize the symptoms. As a culture, we're a lot more aware of physical illness symptoms than we are of mental health illness symptoms. And I think have a high tendency to just kind of assume that's how everyone feels all the time and carry on. And you're like, well, you know, I can still sleep or walk or do what I'm doing each day. Maybe I'm not sleeping very well, but I am making do. And so I don't seek help. So imagine walking through the world with a 50 pound weight on your back. You can walk through the world and it's exhausting. And there are lots yeah. of things that are way more difficult to do. And that's what 
mental illness is like. Being depressed is like that. Carrying extra weight, walking through a more difficult path than other folks. I always describe depression as being wrapped in a warm, wet wool blanket because you can feel it and you know exactly how uncomfortable that's got to be. Well, and, it was good until it got wet. Right. <laughs> but you know what that feels like on your skin and how uncomfortable it is and how heavy. And it's interesting because for many people, depression can be comforting because that's what they've known for so long. And it feels weird when they get help and they start to move out of it. But the key is having access to help and support, whatever that looks like. That can look like medication. That can look like therapy. That can look like just having community spaces to go to. So much of mental illness is impacted by the societal narrative and the shame put around when you're so depressed you can't get out of bed or you haven't washed your hair in five days. There's so much shame put around these things that we push ourselves past what we're really capable of holding on to until we're hitting that breaking point, until we're hitting where it's the serious mental illness. And if you see slightly, ever so slightly, more than half of people with serious mental illness received treatment because they hit that point where they just couldn't keep going. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. So how long does it take between having some mental illness symptoms and then actually seeking treatment? People wait entirely too long. So Again, statistics showing that the average delay between onset of mental illness symptoms and treatment is 11 years. Jeez. Imagine your mental illness being a fifth grader or a sixth grader. That's how long you're waiting before you're asking for help. Or imagine finding a lump on your neck and then waiting 11 years to deal with it. Yeah, again, like tying it into physical ailments makes it seem... Ludicrous. <laughs> right. right. Yes. This is how much the stigma is. So recognize that it's only 200 years ago that if you had any signs of mental illness, you were thrown into a mental hospital and subjected to cold water enemas, shock treatment, isolation, ice baths, tons of really scary <laughs> interventions. Essentially uh, torture. I would call it that. Yes. That's just 200 years ago. I also really want to uh, highlight 50.6% of U.S. youth aged 6 to 17 received treatment as well. So we're at like the halfway mark-ish for youth, which if you notice is more than the 44.8% of adults with mental illness. So I do think it's interesting that we're listening to youth's needs a little bit more than adult needs. Or the younger generation is more willing to seek help. Maybe well, the so stigma is starting to fade a little bit. Yes. And six to 17, they're still having to require a parent to sign off on this. So that means parents and adults are listening to their child sure. when they're saying, hey, I need help. And yeah. I think that's pretty cool. 
or at least I'm willing to believe in a positive way of reading that statistic. Yeah. <laughs> That's think, my goal. I think it's a positive statistic. Um, and Ben, I do think you're right. Younger generations are becoming more comfortable with therapy, with talking about therapy in public ways. And that's part of how we move out of this stigmatization of mental illness. Do y'all think that the past year will help push things along even more because of the normalization of things like talking about self-care and slowing down and dealing with trauma at a global level? I hope so. Right. I, I, I truly hope so. Same. It speaks a lot to me about the diversity of people that I've seen come into my office. I work predominantly with youth, but I've had clients in their 60s and 70s want to start therapy. And, you know, as we're talking about the stigma, there is a generational tie. There's also an ethnicity and racial tie of who is seeking help. A lot of people of color are told, no, you keep these things within the family. You don't talk to someone outside of family about what's happening. And we're starting to see that change slightly and slowly, but it is changing. Mm. And I think that's also really cool to look at. Well, and, and it might be related to the intersectionality, right? So if you are already discriminated against in a society, adding one more thing to be discriminated against is just too much of a burden. And, and this is our need to move to a place of more acceptance and care and moving resources in the direction of taking care of folks. What's interesting is the impact of mental illness on physical illness as well. When you're stressed out, when you're anxious, when you're depressed, it impacts your blood pressure, your heart rate, all of these other parts of your physical body that people will go to the doctor to fix and work on, but won't address other underlying things like their stress and their anxiety. Sure. And healing is even affected by this. So there are great research that if your doc comes into you in your hospital room and shakes your hand or holds your hand while they talk to you or even touches you on the foot, any kind of contact like that and being present to you as a person improves your recovery rate in the hospital and after the hospital. The relationships we have with people are so powerful for our overall health. And if we take care of those relationships, if we nurture those relationships, we increase our resiliency both to mental health issues and to physical health issues. Hmm. So I don't know why everyone's not listening to our podcast. I don't know about toe touching, though. Well, and what's interesting and will be interesting to look at is the statistics about this post-COVID. As more people get vaccinated and we get closer together, the, the fact like... Many people died alone in their hospital bed because we couldn't send people to go see them or sure. family couldn't be there. Sure. And, you know, just looking at how this has impacted us, because it's I mean, it's been hard. I don't think it's been easy on anyone. And I'm an introvert. I am more than happy to stay home in my apartment and read books or watch TV. And it's still been rough. So access to care is a key thing. And Ben, you were talking about, do you think the pandemic and the changes, telehealth and uh, experiencing telehealth for a year will help us with access to services that are not available in a lot mm -hmm. of communities. You know, so one of the statistics that Kim pulled up is that 55% of U.S. counties don't have a single practicing psychiatrist. Okay, I want to so, break that down for a second. U.S. counties, so not right. states, but... 
There's a hundred yeah. counties in North Carolina. Right. So to take that stat and apply it just to North Carolina, 55 of those hundred counties, how convenient, thank you, North Carolina, don't have <laughs> a single practicing psychiatrist. Right. That's crazy. So if you wow. need medication, psychiatric medication, you have to go to a general practice doc. Okay. Who, who may or may not be comfortable with prescribing right. the medication. Number two, may not be really comfortable in diagnosing what's going on or the severity of it. Huh. That's stunning. Kim, you didn't pick up anything else about you know, like psychologists or therapists. In Maybe they don't need a psychiatrist because they have a psychologist. No, 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 that's not true. So the best <laughs> I intervention. I know that's not how that works. <laughs> the best interventions for serious mental illness are a combination of medication and therapy. I mean, also, I would like to think that 100% of U.S. counties having a single psychiatrist is still not that great. Like maybe more than one would be helpful. There's a lot of people live in a county and just having one person to deal with all of them doesn't seem super great either. If you can't tell, the theme seems to be here that access to mental health care is pretty limited and not ideal and something we need to change. And if I can add one more thing, it's not on our notes, but the other part is we know how to create greater mental health how to create greater emotional resiliency. We know the keys to this. We can teach you just like we can teach you how to keep your body healthy with good foods and exercise and enough sleep and enough water and all the rest of that. We have the knowledge about how to increase and improve emotional resiliency in people. And it is not taught. That's true. So we could teach it in schools, right? Like you said, the way you teach how to keep your body healthy. Yes. Yes, we could. Huh. Yeah, I never and, even thought of that. <laughs> yeah, of course, because we don't think of mental illness or mental health. That's like, oh, that's touchy-feely. You keep it in the family, like Kim said, or better yet, don't even talk about it in the family. Yeah, oh, just he's getting up, sweep he's getting it up on underneath that rug. But, <laughs> well, it, I mean, that's part of what this arc is about. I, I pitched this idea because it's so important and so many people don't look at it. We sweep it under the rug. You'll be fine. Go out in nature. Hug a tree. Those are your natural antidepressants. Don't even get me started on medication taking. So, you know, you're right. We could teach these things. And it's so interesting to me when I'm talking with clients. And one of the first things I always teach people is deep breathing. And Ben, you know what a deep breath is like. Yes. Where did you learn it? Band. Exactly. All of my band students are like, oh, yeah, belly breathing. I got that. No one told us it was mental health, but we at least learned one thing in that regard through band. Well, it had, a, it had a practical application outside of mental health. It did. But also what's interesting is how relaxed did you feel when you're playing music? I mean, good. Yeah. Yeah, pretty relaxed. You're taking a lot of deep breathing and you're doing something that you're interested in. Right. But outside of that, the physiological effect of deep breathing and how soothing it is. And that's part of with me being an expressive arts therapist. I talk about music and using a deep breath and then making a vocal tone. So not quite singing, but making a vocal tone during your exhale. And it's hmm. that process. Yeah, just like that. Yeah. While we're here, and, and you know that both you and I, Kim, like to nerd out on these things. Breathing is an incredible process in the body. 
It is both involuntary, if you're not thinking about it, you breathe, and voluntary. I'm thinking about it too much now, <laughs> and I can't breathe right. You bur- it's broken. <laughs> well, I tell you what, the nice thing about that is, if it's broken, you'll pass out, and it'll start back up again on its own. Oh, yep. good, the old reset. Yes. Yeah. Turn Hard it off, reset. turn it back on again. <laughs> yes, it's a powerful thing, and breath and breath control can bring about a sense of peace and calm and draw down all of the anxiety, all of the worry and bring it just into the present moment. And we've talked about that on the show before. We talked about the, uh, the old Vegas nerve. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. That's exactly it. The Las Vegas nerve, the longest nerve in your body. And it's the last nerve that people get on. Okay. So we've talked a bunch about psychiatrists, but that's not the only type of mental health provider. I know that. You guys aren't psychiatrists. So what are you? What am I? (laughs) I am a strange creature. Exactly. Let's talk first about what a psychiatrist is. So a psychiatrist is a medical doctor. So they've gone to medical school and they have specialized training in mental health diagnoses. They also have specialized training in all of the medicines that treat those diagnoses and other interventions such as electroconvulsive therapy that is still used for psychotic and depressive illnesses when they are intractable. It's a last line deal. MDs can also do psychotherapy, although most people opt not to use a a psychiatrist for psychotherapy because they are way more expensive. And there are other mental health providers that are in that space and also, quite frankly, spend more time learning that particular skill because we're not learning all of the physiological stuff that the psychiatrists do. And in say, the end, are there any psychiatrists who are good at psychotherapy? Yes. Yes, there are. Because they want to be good at psychotherapy. So they go on way beyond their required medical training to refine their skills in okay. Uh, psychotherapy. But it's just not part of their basic training coming out of their specialized. Which is already extremely advanced training. But yeah. Yeah, yeah, it is. And it's a lot and it's expensive. So I kind of get it that you want to get to the place where you're making money and paying back the bills. A psychologist has a degree of either a PhD, EDD, or PsyD. So PhD is a doctor in philosophy. That's the oldest original designation for psychologists. Yeah. EDD is educational doctorate and PsyD is psychological doctorate. That's the newest one. PsyD. I've never heard that one. PsyD is more like an MD. So a PsyD is trained practically, but doesn't have to do the science or philosophical part. Many of them do anyway. So this is not a, a, a kick for any of those, but it's not required in that particular degree process. And what's really interesting in the world right now is it's not really spoken about, but like there's this really quiet back and forth bicker about which is better, the PhD or the PsyD. (laughs) And it's so interesting as someone who wants to go for their doctoral degree, and I'm looking at these programs and trying to figure out what's going to be best for me. There's this underlying like, a PsyD is not good enough. And it's like, it, it is though. It is incredible education. Absolutely. <laughs> it's just and, newer. And so there's less support for it, maybe. Yes. That's correct. Yeah. And of course, the folks who have PhDs are saying, you know, because we got one, everyone should get one. Well, right. it's, um, it's sort of encroaching on your slash their land, right? Like, yes, that's true. You know, you as, have as your if, world of PhD. <laughs> psychologists. Right. And it's like, oh, no, there's some newfangled thing. Yeah, right. 
as if there's not enough market anyway to provide services. We just talked about yeah. only half of the people. Well, half of the people have the diagnosis, and less than that are getting treatment. There's plenty of room for this. So the role that psychiatrists play in the mental health field is psychodiagnostics and psychotherapy. Psychodiagnostics is the use of tests that measure the health or illness of various psychological Like a Rorschach. Yes, like a Rorschach. One of the old ones actually created by an MD. But I feel like a lot of the early psychological tests are, right? Well, just a bit of very silly history. Psychologists were originally called alienists. Yes, there's a TV show on HBO and it's really good. Right. But that was a, the original name because people with mental illness seemed alien. Part of the stigma. All right. So psychologists, psychodiagnostics and psychotherapy. And then there's a whole bunch of master's degree uh, level. Which is where I'm providers. at. Yep. This so, is right there. Yeah. I'm in that master's degree level, hopefully someday at the doctoral level, but we'll get there someday. In the crowd where I am, you have MSWs, which is a social worker. They can provide psychotherapy and they're often in roles of case management or discharge planning. A lot of them work in facilities or adjacent to facilities and kind of help with the connection. So the shift over from being in a facility to being out in the general world again. There are MFTs, which is me. I'm a marriage and family therapist. We also provide individual psychology. I find marriage and family therapist to be rather a misnomer. We focus on relationships. So it's the relationship of someone with other people. A lot of our training is done with marriages and families because that's a very visible connection. It's a little bit harder to be like, oh yeah, I talk about you and your connection to society at large. People are like, all right, that's a little weird, but that's what I do. Psychotherapy, but good. So, and then you have an LPCMH. Which is a lot of letters. Many it's, letters. What were they used to be? LPC is what they used to be. So now it's called a licensed professional counselor of mental health. And they can provide individual psychotherapy. And then with additional training that they can go get, they can provide marital and family therapy as well. So um, didn't you have an L in your title for a while? You were an LMFT. Correct. That is technically accurate. LMFT, Licensed Marriage and Family Therapist. Okay. Um, so that is still what you are. Correct. Got it. Uh, it and varies from that, state to state. That's the bef issue. Before yeah. that, you had another letter. I had an A, which was associate. Because which you weren't means, like fully credentialed yet. Correct. I had my master's degree. I had taken all of the state licensure tests and then had to see a specific number of clients in order to say that I am fully licensed. And, you know, as Don was saying, this varies from state to state. It's incredibly annoying. Which is why the LPCMH came into existence is because right. now it's consistent across all 50 states. Correct. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So um, that's not a state to state thing. Right. And then PMHNP which is a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. They can provide psychotherapy and medication management under the supervision of a psychiatrist. So I think that's the majority of the letters that are out there. So um, would that be somebody who is training to become a psychiatrist? No. So this is a person who took the nurse path. They became okay. a registered nurse. They went on and became a clinical nurse practitioner and then subspecialized in psychiatry. Interesting. Okay. 
so yeah, that's a lot of the letters. We <laughs> left out the LCAS, Licensed Clinical Substance Abuse Counselor. Well, now oh, we haven't right. left them out. And that's someone who specializes in substance use and abuse. And then you have art therapists, which are in there too. <laughs> you can be a licensed art therapist, which I'm just a certified expressive arts therapist. So if you can't tell, there are a lot of different variations of mental health support out there. Finding it is where it becomes complicated. Okay. So how do I find a mental health practitioner? I guess if I have insurance. Insurance doesn't necessarily mean that you'll have coverage for mental oh, health. Man. Right. First off, when you're starting to look for a mental health professional and you want to use your insurance. I really hope there's some non-US people listening to this because they're going to be like, <laughs> What? Yes. Oh, dude, it's great. I. <laughs> Why is this so complicated? Sorry, Sorry please continue. Reel myself back in. First step is research your insurance benefits. Ask them if they cover mental health. There's a 1-800 number on the back of your insurance card. That's where you're going to want to call. Ben is checking his insurance card currently. I don't have my wallet on me. Oh, lame. I promise you there's one 800 number on the back of your insurance card. It might be on the front of your insurance card, but usually it's on the back. You're going to want to call and ask if you have mental health coverage. And you're also going to want to ask who your mental health coverage is through. Because some companies have recognized down the line, oh, hey, mental health coverage is important. We don't do it, but we'll carve out a section where we hand it to some other company that will cover it. An example of this is some Blue Cross Blue Shield plans have a carve-out plan to Magellan. So me as a therapist, I am in network with Blue Cross Blue Shield, but I'm not in network with Magellan. So if you had Magellan mental health insurance, I can't see you with your insurance copayments. Correct. That grumpy right. face right there, Ben, beautiful. So now that you're scratching your head going, what? <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. So yeah, it, if you can't tell by now, it's very hard to find mental health services. And this is part of it. This is part of the frustration people have because they're like, oh, I have insurance. I can go find a mental health practitioner who's in network with my insurance. But your insurance isn't always the insurance for your mental health because why make it easy like that? So... Let's say your insurance is Blue Cross Blue Shield. Your mental health coverage is still Blue Cross Blue Shield. You want to use your in-network benefits. Finding out what those are. Again, call that 1-800 number or go to your online portal now that we have those. You'll want to find out if you have a deductible, which is a minimum amount of money you have to meet before your copayment or coinsurance gets kicked in, then you'll want to find out if you have a copay or a coinsurance because these are two different things. <laughs> and sometimes you have a coinsurance until you hit your out-of-pocket max. Can we tell that insurance is really complicated? Yeah. Yes. Can yes. we agree on this? And that it's a complete nightmare. And if you're already struggling with depression or anxiety, finding all of this information just to ask for help Honestly, it's making it impressive that even 50% of people manage to get help. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's exhausting. And I've had to educate myself so much as I've learned because so many practitioners like Dr. Azevedo are out of network. 
because it's exhausting to try and figure out all of this stuff and make sure you've checked off the boxes. It took me three months, 90, a full 90 days just for Blue Cross Blue Shield to say, oh, hey, there's two more pieces of paper we need for you to fill out. And, and this doesn't, you haven't talked about the hold time when you call. So you may be on hold for an hour or two hours before you get <laughs> disconnected fun. and have to start again. Sorry, I'm being a little bit snarky. Well, I'm also being snarky because if we're looking at mental health care in the United States, it is positioned so that people can't achieve it. It is made so that you have to sit on hold for 40 minutes. Who with a full-time job can sit on hold for 40 minutes just to be able to ask one question that may or may not get answered. Yeah. And there's nothing like, you know, an urgent care or something you can like walk in. I don't know. I yes, mean, I guess ur urgent care is a bad example, maybe. Sure. Well, I mean, there are like in our area, Holly Hill Hospital or what's the one over in Garner? Triangle Springs. Triangle Springs. So those do have the ability for you to be assessed immediately. But nonetheless, they still have to find a provider in the community unless you're going to be hospitalized. Yeah, I guess I was thinking like maybe an organization like that would be able to help with this learning curve. Yeah. Well, we used to have this, so a little bit of history and systems. We used to have community mental health centers. And here in the Raleigh area, we also had psychiatric facilities that were state run like Dorothea Dix. But the politicians decided it was too expensive to provide that service for substance abuse and mental health and did away with them. So they were privatized into organizations that essentially have a catchment area and they provide the oversight for Medicare, Medicaid and those services. Yeah. And so it's still hard to access any kind of service. I don't want to be depressing about all of this or spend too much time on it. I get up on a soapbox about this because it is so challenging. And it's one of those things where it sets people up for failure. It sets people up to look at it and say, that's too exhausting. I don't want to. So if I, it, even if I have insurance, it's going to be pretty hard to find a mental health practitioner. What if I don't have insurance? Is it easier, but just more expensive? Or is it still crazy hard? It's a yes and. So there are a lot of online resources. So Psychology Today, Good Therapy, Bark.com. There are a couple other ones out there where you can research people. So if you went to psychologytoday.com and typed in my name, I would pop up. You'd be able to see a bio about me, a lovely headshot that my amazing brother took and, you know, what insurances I'm in network with, whether I'm taking clients, all of that stuff. So finding that information is pretty easy. And a lot of people go with the default of, oh, I have Blue Cross Blue Shield. This person's in network with Blue Cross Blue Shield. They should be able to see me with my benefits. For the, the most part, that works out. <laughs> sure. The other thing that you can do is go on Blue Cross Blue Shield type in your zip code or the zip code you would like to find the therapist in because it could be your work one and a list of therapists will pop up that are in network and then you'll have to call them to see if they're taking new patients, right. which is again, another hassle. Right. And especially with COVID and moving through all of this, a lot of people have been booked up because a lot of people reached out, which is awesome. I'm very happy about that. It's awesome to see people reaching out, asking for help and having the space to get there. But yeah, a lot of people have waiting lists 
because they just don't have the space to see new clients right now. So yeah, psychology today, you can research and you can go through your insurance company. And there, I mean, there are ways to do it. If you know somebody who sees a therapist, you can ask them who they see, get referrals that way. Psychology today, you can search by specialties as well. So if you're looking for someone who specializes in a certain thing, like LGBT affirming therapists, that right there, you can look for and find people who state that they are LGBT affirming. You can also go on the LGBT center of Raleigh or Durham and look at their resources there. So there are ways to do it. Again, the insurance side of it gets iffy just because of the way insurance is built. Blue Cross Blue Shield saying like, oh, hey, I have that insurance doesn't always mean that that's what's covering your mental health. And insurance companies make it difficult for mental health professionals to get credentialed with them. There's a lot of difficulties, but there are also, so even if the therapist that you find that you want to work with isn't in network, there can be out of network benefits. And some folks file courtesy for you electronically, which speeds up whatever payment you would get. I do that for folks. The other thing is if you have a medical savings account or a health savings account as part of your work benefit, all mental health providers are covered under that. So if you go and get therapy, you can use that health savings account and that saves you taxes because that's all pre-tax dollars. So it's like a 33% discount roughly depending on your tax bracket. Now all the accountants are going to call me. So there are a couple of other ways to approach trying to pay for your mental health process. There are also low-cost, nonprofit, usually, providers that are out there. Like in our area, it's Triangle Family Services. They will provide a sliding scale for psychotherapy and a variety of other things. Also, Ben, you were mentioning earlier that I used to have another letter. I had the LMFTA. If you're looking at private practices, a lot of private practices were offer lower rates for their associates or their interns who are just as good. We're well-trained individuals. We're just jumping through the hoops. If you can't hear, there's a lot of them. We're just jumping through the hoops, but you can get lower rates with these individuals. And then There are also government programs, veteran programs, so the VA. And then Given Hour is a program, I think they're across the United States. I know they're in North Carolina, where if you are a veteran, you can get access to free mental health care. So I did a couple of hours for them. Cool. Those are great resources. Well, that was a lot of stats and figures on mental health. And we kind of dove into stigma a little bit. We're going to have a whole separate episode about stigma and mental health, but we kind of touched on it here. And hopefully that gives you kind of a broad overview of mental health and how it's just as important as physical health. And hopefully moving forward, we'll be talking about it more as a society and getting past that halfway point of people getting the treatment they need. And gosh, maybe insurance will get better someday. We can only dream. There was so much confusing stuff in this particular episode. I can't imagine any of our listeners don't have questions. So if you do have questions, hit us up on our Facebook and ask some questions so that we can clarify this stuff for you. I was going to say another thing about the Facebook group, but for our own mental health, say hi to us (laughs) so we can have a community. As always, thanks for joining us. And until next time, enjoy the drive. We got to keep these dang things shorter, you guys. Sorry. I get really excited about this stuff. It's a whole freaking hour.